Hello and welcome to episode 40. I'm recording this on Thursday the 5th of November 2020 and I'm excited to let you know that the second edition of A Circular Economy Handbook is now on sale. Whoopee! It's been a long wait, it should have been published in the summer, but the UK book industry went into lockdown with printers and wholesalers either closed or understaffed. So now it's finally on sale in print or ebook versions. I'd like to say thank you to the editorial, publishing and marketing teams at Kogan Page and to all those people who helped with feedback and provided endorsements. And a big thank you to those who wrote contributions, including Richard James McCowan and Katie Beverly for their new sections on biomimicry and eco-design. I'll tell you a bit more about the second edition and give you a code for a 20% discount at the end of this episode. So get your notepads ready. Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. In this episode, we're rounding up some of the themes emerging from the last nine conversations. We've talked to people in Australia, the United States, the Netherlands and the UK. We've talked to two organisations making fantastic products out of waste, We've spoken to a remanufacturer of beautiful, high-quality office furniture and to several businesses helping to intensify resource loops so we can get more use and productivity out of many different kinds of resources, everything from equipment to staff. One of the themes I noticed is that people everywhere are wanting to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. It's becoming a motivator for companies and being factored into decisions, particularly for, procure- for procurement. We'll come back to that later. The first theme I'd like to focus on is solutions to unlock value from underused resources. How can we get more from less and intensify those resource loops? Tom Fekarotta, who we hear from in a minute, talked about Google's aim to provide technology to support circularity quoting Kate Brandt, who says Google sees waste is a data problem. We hear from companies developing platforms and ways of matchmaking between teams and organisations, all with the aim of getting more value from underused assets, equipment, chemicals, consumables, space and even people. We started by talking to Tom Fekarotta in episode 31. Tom works for Reapley in the United States. Reapley's mission is to make the world's resources more discoverable and transferable through technology. Reapley combines enterprise asset management with a virtual marketplace, which allows organisations to track inventory and depreciation. It helps people to visualise, quantify and use surplus assets, 
and to offload end-of-life unwanted assets to organisations that need them. We talked about the difference between typical approaches in the US compared to Europe, with lots of focus in the US on zero-waste strategies, and companies asking what are we discarding, and what assets, equipment and consumables are we sitting on. We hear about Reaply's Asset Exchange Manager, allowing people to highlight those unused assets, equipment and consumables, so that specific teams and business units can reuse those resources. And then from a sort of a waste diversion and tracking perspective, our platform kind of gives you insights into, okay, what are, what are the classes of assets that are being reused the most? Where can we make systemic improvements on other resources? Um, and it's kind of all done in this easy to use uh, user interface. And are you able to help companies and other organizations, universities and so on, benchmark against similar organizations so if your best-in-class university had a reuse rate for chemicals of this and lab equipment of that are you able to kind of give people a picture of where they should be aiming to i will say that we can give them a picture of that information from an intramural or from an internal perspective but we haven't done it in the sense of hey we're going to um we're going to uh, uh share the, the, the metrics of one organization against another. Um, we don't want to pit organizations against each other. We want to, we want to make sure that they understand um, how they're improving waste diversion efforts across um, campuses, across business units, um, and how they can make, you know, market improvements. Yeah, we, we have a, a sort of a categorical shift organization to organization. So, the beauty of Reaply is you can configure it to your organization. Uh, so, you know, how Reaply looks to uh, an institution will look different than how it looks to a manufacturer. Um, same thing with biopharma, right? They might want thousands of antibodies. And so we'll have to, to measure the, um, the rate of exchange by, by volume in some cases. So, We've built this system, it's a pro progressive web application that, not to get super technical, um, that allows for this sort of configuration changes so that really any, any two, two organizations can connect via a shared category interest. Mm, okay, so Reaply sits in the middle with a, with a standardized set of categories and each of the users can tweak the terminology according to, to what they... Exactly. exactly. In episode 32, we talked to Christian van Maren from Excess Materials Exchange in the Netherlands. Excess Materials Exchange describes itself as a dating site for secondary materials and waste, matchmaking between those who have materials and those who need them. Christian explains how the system works and goes on to talk about Excess Material Exchange's semantic web of the circular economy. Sure. So the way that we work is, is basically threefold. What we do is that when a company comes to us with a particular material flow or with a product, we give an identity to that stream or to that object. Because we see that waste is really a material without an identity. And by giving it back that identity using something that we call the resources passports, it then gets almost by having that identity value again. And next to the identity, we add intelligence to that. 
And we do that through a host of uh, artificial intelligence tools that we're building. And we're combining that with our own intelligence, which is not so artificial. And that is sort of the engine behind our matchmaking process. And next to the intelligence, we use an integrated approach. We help our clients really from the start till the end with the matchmaking as much as we can, but as also as much as the client needs. So if it's like a large company that we work with, they probably want to use their own logistical service provider or their own legal advisors. But if they don't have that, because they're you know maybe a bit of a smaller organization, we can help with that as well. Because in our network, we have specialized uh, you know legal advisors or logistical service providers that can help them uh, you know with with the whole transaction. Basically, if you if you flatten what we do, it's a number of things. We create economies of supply and economies of demand because we map resource flows and we always look out for companies that could use certain excess material flows or waste. And also because of that, by making those streams visible, all of a sudden it may become interesting for another company to invest a little bit more money on getting a certain uh, processing capability on the market so they can tap into the value that that data provides. And also what we do is that we build a fairly big database, now about 4,000 entries, in which we have mapped all the different recycling or reuse opportunities that there are around the globe, mostly focused on, on Europe. And we've also added to that database the technological readiness level. So this can also inform our clients on you know, what is already currently operational, that they can just more or less plug and play but also on things that are on the horizon and things that they may be able to plan for or maybe even invest in because they just want to give it a little nudge um, to get it ready for the market. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, in in my own sort of, uh, I call it a database, but it's a spreadsheet really of 600 odd circular economy examples. That's one of the things I've done. If, if somebody's just um, had a research breakthrough, but it's not yet commercialised. Then I'll, you know, I'll note that it's at that stage rather than being a fully fledged, um, up and running thing. And a lot of those, if you go back a couple of years later, have made it to market, but some of them may not have done. Um, so yeah, th- things are just changing so quickly that, um, you know, it, it, it's got to be one of the underlying principles hasn't it for anybody involved in the circular economy is to is to keep looking at what's what's evolving outside to see if there's now a better solution than the one that you started off with absolutely and and the way that we approach that is by building what they call a semantic web of the circular economy or a linked database where we link the information from the passports that are in our database so looking at information like on a product level on a component level and on a material level, but also on a functional level, and then linking that to other databases that we have on recycling capacity, recycling capability, uh, other reuse options that are for all sorts of materials. And by connecting those and then laying those all on top of each other, you create what they call this semantic web. And that would help us to not only find matches much quicker, but also find much more relevant and maybe interesting matches but of course, as this database grows and as we connect it with information on environmental impact and on social impact, 
it allows us to keep it sort of evergreen and, and keep our clients informed of what is going on and what the impact of their decisions is. In episode 34, Noreen Cam and Michael Brown from Loop Global in Australia tell us about the circular asset management solution they've developed. Their solution helps companies reduce their capex, improve the performance and lifetime cost of equipment, and recover value from the equipment at the end of its service period. Michael explains how this approach is normal in the airline industry, where often the airline doesn't own anything the plane, the engines, even the seats. Instead, everything is owned and maintained by the suppliers. Rolls-Royce is a well-known example of this, starting to sell power by the hour in the 1990s, so that an airline buys the performance of the engine instead of buying the engine itself. Noreen and Michael realise that many other industries don't use these approaches, but could do. Loop Global is helping companies benefit from circular asset management, starting with laboratory equipment. So we're really excited because um, our passion is really to prolong the life cycle of assets to minimise landfill. Um, and we, what we've created is we've established a network that's all about the full life cycle of the assets, considering from the start all the stakeholders from the original equipment manufacturer to the buyers of the assets, to building a network of service partners to support those assets in their second life or subsequent lives, um, and a new mindset shift of sellers of the assets as opposed to that traditional linear mindset of procuring, using, and then disposing, which is the vast majority of what we've seen so far. So um, one thing that is quite unique about our model is we really try to partner with um, all of our clients and the stakeholders really long term. So it's not about being reactive when they do need to dispose of the asset. It's actually trying to understand what their asset base um, from the start and if they're working towards certain depreciation cycles, they can actually register it within a circular asset database up front. So it's almost like if you um, were buying a car and you knew you weren't going to use it to the end of its life then you're going to maximise and make sure that it's got the full service history and everything to get the maximum value out of it when you've, you, you, you're upgrading to your next um, vehicle. In episode 37, we met Lika van Kerkeven, co-founder of Flow2 Healthcare. Lika aims to drive the global change towards a circular economy by bringing the concept of sharing to the healthcare sector. Back in 2012, Flow2 Healthcare became the first sharing marketplace for healthcare organisations, making it easy to share equipment, services, facilities, knowledge and skills within or between organisations. Yes, yeah, so when we started, uh, we had the vision that uh, every organisation would share publicly what they have to offer or what they, have, uh, what they need, actually. So we had flow2.com for every business organization and we had flow2healthcare.com for every healthcare organization. And then we actually discovered that there is a reluctance. Everybody said it's a good idea, but nobody was really doing it. So there is a reluctance to openly share whatever you need or whatever you have standing idle. Then we discovered that for private companies, the reluctance comes from a, a, a competitive perspective. So they are afraid to share whatever they need or whatever they have standing idle from a competitive point of view because they might give away information to competitors that they don't want to give away and uh, public or semi-public organizations were afraid to share 
because uh, if they share what they have standing idle and then some newspaper comes along and just concludes that they have probably wasted money because they have all this idle capacity that they're not using and that was bought with public money. So uh, that was uh, a kind of a hurdle we had to take. And then we evolved to start um, making closed communities uh, for networks of organizations that were already in a trust relationship with each other or with a central partner. So that that partner would partner with us and then bring the practice of sharing to that network. Uh, Or organizations that are big enough to start sharing internally. And that's, for example, a hospital, but also multinational organizations with several locations spread across the country or even the world. Um, they would have a closed community where employees could actually make their supply or demand visual. Mm. And the organization would be able to optimize usage of what, the, what they already have. Yeah. So how, how do you <laughs> encourage people to think differently and think about um, sharing instead? Yeah, I think we've come to our biggest challenge now already <laughs> in this discussion. Uh, because the mindset is, we are selling, of course, a, a technical solution, but our true, what we truly sell is a, is a change in mindset because people indeed have to get out of their usual way of, of doing business and start doing something new. And that greatly depends on trust, like you just said. There is, for sharing, you need trust. In episode 38, we hear from our youngest guest so far, Zakia Kadji. Zakia founded Swap It Up, which helps youngsters get more from underused fashionable clothing by swapping it with others at their schools. Swap It Up is responding to the lockdown and the need for increased biosecurity by developing apps to help people share what they have and and arrange their exchanges online. I noticed many of our guests talking about the alignment of values between suppliers and their customers or between collaborating partners. Increasingly, people are thinking about what they can do to be part of the solutions for climate change, biodiversity regeneration and human well-being. And people are realising that this doesn't need to be a cost to the business or just some wishy-washy statements that you make in your corporate social responsibility reports. There are lots of opportunities to be involved in circular solutions that are a win-win. Sophie Sigal, who we hear from in episode 35, helps companies use value creation and innovation to shape new customer experiences by using the power of play. I'm delighted that Sophie's one of the coaches on Rethink's new circular coaching programmes. We're helping people understand and use circular approaches to strengthen their business strategy or to build back better in response to COVID-19. You can find out more on the website and I'll include a link in the show notes. Sophie believes strongly that the circular economy just makes business sense. Now, when we talk about sustainability with companies and through co-create impact, we see that the, the why, why we need sustainability, why we need to focus on that, is not the discussion anymore. The discussion is around the how. How do we make it happen? How do we make it relevant to our employees and to the wider um, community, our partners in the supply chain and so on, as well as uh, our employees? Um, so I think this is one of those. And when we look at the forces from pure commercial background, it's a no-brainer. You know, I cannot imagine any commercial person saying, I don't see the opportunity in that. 
In episode 33, we meet one of my circular economy heroes, Dr. Greg Lavery. Back in 2012, Greg, a management consultant, was advising companies and governments on the future of manufacturing. Greg saw the fantastic potential for circular economy approaches to transform the sustainability of manufacturing and other sectors, and got so frustrated by the slow pace of change that he decided to set up his own circular economy business. Greg founded Ripe Office, now a rapidly growing vertically integrated business that remanufactures beautiful, ergonomic and durable office furniture offering a wide range of benefits to clients, including much better value for money. Let's hear more from Greg. Really good question. And like many entrepreneurs, um, uh, you can see from my introduction, I've sort of, I've sort of got a burning passion all my life for sustainability. Um, and, and the question is, of course, you can do sustainability and spend a lot of money. Um, and, and there are a lot of organisations out there that are unprofitable, doing wonderful things, but really struggling to make ends meet. And we thought, well, look, there's a lot of problems out there. Where are those profitable opportunities so we can make some really big change at the same time do that in an economic fashion? There's got to be a better way. Um, and, and you mentioned I'm an engineer by training, absolutely. Got together with a couple other smart people and we figured out how to remanufacture furniture back to as new condition. And that's really significant because remanufacturing is one of those things that a lot of people don't understand. It starts with the term re, so isn't that just the same as refurbishing or, or reconstituting or repairing? Well, actually, it isn't. It's, an, it's a quality-controlled engineering process, and that's been one of our biggest challenges. Ripe Office decided on a vertically integrated model. In other words, partnering with upstream and downstream supply chain providers to offer a better service. So actually, we say we said right from the start, we are going to vertically integrate. We're, we're going to cut out the dealers. So we're going to be manufacturing. We're going to be designers. And we're going to deal directly with the client. Uh, and, and that was a great decision as it works out because we, we now employ architects and interior designers. And we have some wonderful conversations with, with the client. And we don't have to explain to all these intermediaries who, who through Chinese whispers, the, the message of what we do, do get lost. It's actually going straight to the customer saying, we can give you everything that you've just asked for. And how would you like that to come at a price tag less than half what you would have paid and with an environmental footprint 80% lower? And by the way, we're also going to employ long-term unemployed people with disabilities to remanufacture your furniture. And, for, and the real kicker then is we'll give you the marketing stories for your media distribution as to where the furniture came, came from, how much greenhouse gas emissions, how many hours of long-term um, unemployed and disabled labour we've used uh, at a real living wage, uh, how, much ton, how many tonnes of waste. And all of that turns into an amazing like marketing feast for an organisation that has values around sustainability and purpose. Greg also explains how procurement decisions can showcase your company values and help you build connections and trust with your customers. People are choosing to buy from and work with companies that share their values, especially around environmental and social ethics. So what happens is when a visitor or, or let's say a client comes in to meet with their, their um, uh, what would you call it, I suppose lawyer or solicitor, they're shown into this meeting room that is incredibly decadent. And, and if, I'm, if I'm walking into a room where the furniture is more expensive than I could ever afford in my organization or my personal life, automatically I think, gosh, I know where my fees are going. These guys are expensive because they've got expensive tastes. And, and I resent that a little bit, right? So you've already got a not a very good values alignment there and, and almost a standoff, not comfortable relationship 
uh, it's a bit, little bit adversarial, let's even put it that way, right? Whereas lawyers are coming to us and saying, we know we've got this problem, what can we do? And we say, how would you like your, your boardroom table to be post-consumer recycled yogurt pots with a little bit of tin foil from the lids for an accent through that? Uh, and underneath it, the, the world's most beautiful frame from Vitra, which in, in itself would cost you five to six thousand pounds just for the frame. And how would you like that cheaper than you're currently paying for your furniture? And they say, oh, it's a no-brainer. Of course we want that. So then you think about the mindset of, of that interaction. So a visitor walks in and goes, gosh, this is an interesting table. The lawyer then says, oh, you'd be interested in the story. That's actually had a second life because we as a law firm and as indiv individuals care about creating a better planet. And the, and the client then goes, oh, fantastic. I can see now an alignment of purpose here. And, and what's more, then the, then the lawyer says it doesn't cost as much as you think, et cetera, et cetera. So you've immediately got, instead of an adversarial situation, a very much an alignment of values, which is why the business business world is moving, right? Right now, it's, it's all about we want to do business with you as a supplier or as a customer because we share your values and we know that if you care about the planet you're probably going to care about your suppliers as well and your supply chain therefore that's a much better relationship and much more fulfilling for our staff and ourselves and what's more we know you're going to challenge us with better products and we're going to we can work together in a, in a very familiar way and what's great as you would know, as uh, being a part of the circular economy and sustainability world as you are, Catherine, as I'm sure most of the uh, people listening to this podcast are, sustainability people are friendly, fundamentally. And I've done business most of my life with sustainability people, and I see other industries where it's a dog-eat-dog, zero-sum game. But we in the sustainability game know that one-on-one one doesn't mean that someone else is going to miss out, right? It, it, it's not a zero-sum game. When you're helping the environment, everyone wins. And if we can make money along the way, that's a bonus. In episode 36, we meet Dan Dicker, the founder and CEO of Circular & Co. Dan began his career as a product designer at Dyson, but had a strong desire to live and work a short walk from the sea. So back in 2003, Dan founded a pioneering circular design practice called A Short Walk. Now rebranded as Circular & Co, Dan's team invents solutions that keep our materials and finite resources in use for as long as possible, while preventing them from ever reaching landfill or our oceans. As well as their range of award-winning products available across 38 countries, they advise, develop and deliver circular solutions for global brands worldwide. Reinventing today's waste into tomorrow's circular products. You know, the whole purpose for circular economy is you keep that cycle going on and on and on and on. Uh, and every time, importantly, every time there's that cycle, you try and increase the value of that resource and material rather than decrease it. Whereas at the moment, a lot of people, you know, they perhaps recycle once, turn it into something else that actually has a lower value and then can't get recycled again. So it's a lost opportunity. So that's the focus and key. Um, so I think, um, you know, our attempt, a take-back scheme is an attempt for us to recapture that material and have it back to us so that we can turn it back into a new product. And technically, it's not particularly hard. Yeah, I think you're right. We, you know, it's the extended producer responsibility legislation that mm. we need. And, the, you know, the statistic that always um, shocked me was finding out that even though we have levies in place for all the packaging that's put on the market in the UK under the um, European Union um, legislation, that the money that comes back from that 
only pays for about 10% of the cost of the collection and recycling by local councils. So mm. that's ridiculous, isn't it? How how are you ever going to encourage companies to do something better with packaging and how are you ever going to fund a better recycling infrastructure? You yeah. know, it it just seems um you know really short-sighted. Yeah. So you you were saying that Circular Co designs other products too, not just the ones that are for sale on your website, but you're designing for commercial clients. Um, so of the products you've designed over the last 17 years, which ones are you most proud of? From a design perspective, I think the, the, the cup, the reusable circular cup has been brilliant because people have really engaged with that and people really, really enjoy it. And from a social perspective and social media, we always get such positivity. And I still remember the day when we saw a cup, our first cup being held by a member of the public in Exeter service stations with my, with my two lads, you know, and they came running over to me and like, daddy, daddy, there's someone over there with a, with an R cup as it was called then, you know, and it was like really exciting because that was, that was just an idea in a head. Um, and then 18 months later, there's someone using it um, and doing good with it. So, you know, that, that's been especially proud because it, it, you know we've, we've seen it right through from just a, a thought in a head to people using it. It, it made it, it makes a difference. Um, but then we've done other ranges as well that we've been proud of where we did, you know, we did a load of, um, a range of products made from plant pots, recycled plant pots um, for garden centres. But then at the same time, we instigated a collection service so that if you, you if a customer could come in and drop off their old pots, and let's face it, we've got hundreds of them in our garden sheds sort of stacking up. Um, you could drop your old pots off and at the same, next to the bin where you drop them off would be a range of products made from those exact pots that you you know that you're dropping off and that that was really we were really proud of that because again it was a sort of penny dropping moment for consumers and people were like blimey you know these old pots that are just piling up in my shed they've got value and use and they can be turned into something really nice and beautiful and you know i think it's important to design products you know that the the cup you know won lots and lots of awards and it, it won the witch award and, and but that's made from waste you know, it's important to show people that just because it's made from waste does not mean in any way it's going to be inferior. Um, it's still going to be a really good functioning quality product. And last but certainly not least, in episode 39, we heard about an almost poetically perfect plastic product. Rob Thompson started Odyssey Innovation to find a way to use plastic litter from seashores to fund the collection of more marine plastics. Rob came up with the idea of a kayak made from those waste materials. You can now buy the kayaks, kayaking equipment and other useful products to collect those problematic waste plastics. On top of this, Rob offers the fishing industry a solution for its damaged or end-of-life fishing nets, instead of them having to pay landfill tax or risk illegal disposal in the sea. The fishing industry and others are helping collect all that waste plastic stopping it becoming a major problem for sea life, wildlife and even humans. They're feeling great about being part of the solution, not part of the problem. I promised a bit more about the book and how you can get a 20% discount. If you want a book that explains the what, why and how of the circular economy, covering all the main schools of thought and with over 300 real examples from around the world, then a circular economy handbook 
How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business is the book for you. It'll help you discover more about the circular approaches that are emerging in food, fashion, consumer technology, packaging and other sectors, and find out how these reduce risk, improve resilience and build profitable, future-fit organisations. The books earn praise from circular economy experts from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, Technical University of Delft, United Nations Industrial Development Organisation, the Circular Economy Club and many more. And it's been described as a must-read for businesses, students and policymakers. My new edition includes extensive updates, builds on the latest research on circular business models, has a new chapter on packaging and over a hundred new examples. It's now available at all good booksellers and you can save 20% when you buy the book from koganpage.com. That's K-O-G-A-N page.com, which ships worldwide. You need to use code CIRCL20, that's circle without an E, 20, at the checkout. The last word today comes from Greg Lavery of Ripe Office, a compliment which I was a bit embarrassed about, so I deleted it from the original episode. I think there's still a lot more education to go on, which is which is why it's wonderful to be able to explain to people the circular economy um, on brilliant podcasts like this one. Thanks, Greg. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one? Head over to rethinkglobal.info or buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. You can find the podcast show notes with transcripts and links on rethinkglobal.info. Please let us know what you'd like us to feature on the podcast, and you can help other people find it by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. You can get in touch via our website, rethinkglobal.info, or connect with me on LinkedIn. See you next time.